0: It was Mother's Day 2012, when the family of Janet Sweet, 62, and her husband Richard, 55, headed to their Manchester, Iowa home to honor their mom and grandmother. But on this Mother's Day, there would be no celebrating, because what family members found on the inside of the home when they arrived for the gathering at about 2pm that Sunday was a grisly crime scene. This is True Crime IRL, and I'm Kelly Barron's Brink, and this is the story of teenage killer Isaiah Sweet. Isaiah Sweet grew up in the small rural community of Manchester, Iowa, which has about 5,000 people. It's safe quiet, with good schools, and it's the kind of place you'd want to raise your kids. Let me backtrack a minute. I mean, at least it seems safe, but I've actually covered two other murder cases that occurred just minutes from here. So maybe the word safe is a bit of a stretch. Evil knows no boundaries, and it lurks in towns of all sizes. So Isaiah Sweet was a 17-year-old high school dropout with a troubled past and a history of volatile behavior. There isn't a ton of information about Isaiah Sweet's younger years, but we do know that he had been raised solely by his grandparents since the age of four. Isaiah actually claimed that his mother's parental rights were legally terminated after he was raped by a neighbor at the age of four years old. Sweet's biological mother Stacy denies that claim, but she added that the reason Sweet went to live with his grandparents is because she was involved in a relationship in which there was terrible domestic violence preventing her from being able to have her children live with her. Besides the domestic violence, there was a great deal of substance abuse and general instability in Stacy Sweet's home. So Sweet's mom, Stacy, adamantly opposed having Sweet placed in the home of her parents, Richard and Janet. She asked the state to actually place Isaiah in the foster care system rather than with them. Because she claimed that as a child herself, she had been physically and verbally abused by Richard and Janet. Even though she was aware that her situation wasn't conducive to raising a child, she knew that having Isaiah raised by Richard and Janet's suite was a recipe for disaster as well. From the age of four when Isaiah was placed in Richard and Janet's care until he was a teenager, his grandparents ceased all contact with Isaiah's mother Stacy. She was not allowed to see Isaiah, to speak to him, or to communicate with him in any way. However, when he became a teenager, Stacy snuck Isaiah a cell phone, and he used that phone to communicate with his bio mom and reestablish their relationship. All that being said, to the public, the suites seemed on the outside like they were probably pretty stable people. They lived in a nice, newer construction home in a safe, middle-class community. But as we know, things are not always what they seem behind closed doors. Richard and Janet Sweet had been married for over 30 years. Richard was an airplane mechanic and Janet was a stay-at-home mom. She was described as a great person, a fantastic cook, and a wonderful decorator. Richard, however, battled some internal demons. He was actually a known alcoholic. His own daughter and stepdaughter admitted that Richard could be combative and had a tendency to talk down to others. Even though Richard was known to be negative to those around him, stepdaughter Angie Camlin would later say that she did think deep down that her mom and her stepdad were good people who may have been far from perfect but tried their best. And Richard and Janet did claim that they did try their best to raise Isaiah Sweet, their grandson, as if he were their own child. But as the years went on, A lot of angst grew inside Isaiah, and the boy fought constantly with his grandparents. As he grew into a teen, Isaiah desperately wanted to move back in with his biological mother. But Richard and Janet refused, and things continued getting worse. Between the ages of 16 and 17, Isaiah's grandparents called 911 a lot regarding Isaiah's behavior. And by a lot, I mean 911 dispatchers were getting calls from Richard and Janet more than once a month. It was becoming evident that the couple was not equipped to handle their grandson's behavior, or they were just too tired to do it anymore. You see, Janet was battling leukemia while she was trying to raise her troubled grandson. And there was a lot of stress in the home with that illness alone. But adding to that, Isaiah's outbursts and Richard's alcoholism, it was a cocktail of disaster just waiting to happen. This family seemed to be constantly arguing with Isaiah Sweet at the center, The teen made it clear to his friends and family that he absolutely hated his grandparents. But why? Many of the calls to police included Richard or Janet Sweet asking for help with their grandson because he was threatening them, kicking his grandfather, using drugs, and just arguing with them and not coming home at night. The most recent 911 call was on April 11th, about a month before Richard and Janet Sweet's deaths. Janet Sweet was concerned because Isaiah was using a lighter and a can of aerosol spray to make a blowtorch. Richard Sweet told a dispatcher that he was a truck driver on the road and his grandson Isaiah was home with his grandmother attempting to start fires in their Manchester home. According to the dispatcher, Janet Sweet didn't want Isaiah charged. She just wanted him back under control. No one was hurt in the incident and they moved on. The calls to law enforcement seemed to escalate in 2011, going from just a little family dispute on March 28, 2011, to Isaiah Sweet kicking his grandfather in the stomach on May 16, 2011. During that call, an officer stated that Isaiah tried to bring his bike into the house. Janet Sweet told Isaiah to put the bike in the garage, and he cursed at her and refused to do it. Richard Sweet overheard the conversation and also told Isaiah to put the bike in the garage, according to records. Isaiah told police his grandfather hit him in the face and that's why he kicked him. But Janet and Richard Sweet told the officer that Richard didn't lay a hand on Isaiah. At this point in the altercation, Stacy Sweet, Isaiah's mother, arrived at her parents' house and took Isaiah home with her for the night. Isaiah's grandparents made many other calls to police regarding his behavior, including, on June 27th, 2011, Isaiah was arguing with his grandfather for most of the day and his grandparents said Isaiah was making threats towards the family, police, and the public. Isaiah told police it was stupid and he wouldn't do it, but the officer noted that the family was trying to get Isaiah in for an evaluation and he wasn't cooperating. Richard and Janet Sweet wanted the officer to take Isaiah in, but the officer didn't see cause at that time. The grandparents then asked the officer about placing Isaiah in foster care, and the officer told them that wasn't an option because his mother could just take him in. And as you know, they did not want Isaiah to have anything to do with his mother, so they told him that wasn't an option either. Days later on June 30, 2011, Isaiah was taken for mental commitment to St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. There was a request for police to be in the area in case assistance was needed, according to records, but there were no other notes on that report. On August 2, 2011, Janet Sweet said her grandson was being violent. He broke a phone and then he left the home. The next day, on August 3, 2011, the Suites called 911 saying they didn't know what to do with Isaiah since he had been returned from his commitment. They were having problems with him and they had an order for a commitment again, but didn't know if they should use it or not. The police officer advised them that they needed to speak with their therapist. Another 911 call on September 2, 2011 was from Isaiah's great-grandmother, Betty Adsit. She said that Isaiah stole $100 from her purse and left school after second-hour class. The next week, on September 8, 2011, Richard Sweet would call police again. He said Isaiah was threatening his sick wife and threatening to beat up and kill him and burn down their house. Isaiah didn't respond to the officers' commands when he arrived, and at one point, Isaiah got up from the couch and went towards his grandparents before police intervened. His grandparents said again that they didn't want to pursue charges, and Isaiah was released to their custody. Officers warned Isaiah that if they returned, he would be charged. The following month on October 4th, 2011, Janet Sweet reports more vague trouble with Isaiah. And October 2011 just continued to be a really volatile month for the Sweet family. October 5th, 2011, Isaiah's grandparents called police saying Isaiah was calling them names and wouldn't come home that night. Wait, what? I didn't know you could call police for name-calling. I'll keep that in mind, though. I mean, maybe I'm completely wrong here, and I know Isaiah Sweet was an extremely troubled young man and did an absolutely horrible thing. But I can't help but wonder if there was fuel being added to the fire, so to speak, with all of these constant 911 calls. I don't know, but calling 911 because your grandson called you a name, that just seems kind of ridiculous. Days later, on October 7th, 2011, Richard Sweet reported that an unknown 16-year-old was actually threatening Isaiah this time. Then the next day, on October 8th, 2011, Janet Sweet called 911 to report that she was missing a bottle of medication. Her thought was that Isaiah may have stolen it, but she didn't have any proof of that. On October 11, 2011, Janet Sweet called 911 again, saying Isaiah was asking her for money and she thought it was for drugs. Some of this report is redacted, and the next line states, quote, threatened to beat them up and break into the house, end quote. An officer talked to Isaiah. Isaiah told the officer he didn't know what was going on, but that he didn't like being at home. More good times rolling in the month of October, I tell ya. On October 20th, 2011, when Janet Sweet said she found a marijuana pipe in Isaiah's room while he was gone, she claimed that her husband, Richard, overheard conversations about Isaiah selling marijuana. Six days later, on October 26th, 2011, police conduct a consent search of the Sweet's home and they find Isaiah's marijuana pipe. These are just a few of the 911 calls Richard and Janet Sweet made to police about their grandson Isaiah in that short one-year period, sometimes just days apart. And other times, the only reprieve from the 911 calls would be during the time where they'd had Isaiah committed into a mental institution. And while dealing with Isaiah's behavior may not have been a walk in the park for Richard and Janet Sweet, these two were by no means saints either. Richard and Janet Sweet were said to be facing financial difficulties, and Richard faced a first-degree theft charge for allegedly taking $10,000 from the trust for Marie and Sweet, his mother. Court records show that Janet Sweet was served an eviction case dated July 2011. In December, Janet Sweet filed a child support case against Stacy Sweet, Isaiah Sweet's mother. Needless to say, this immense chaos in his life made Isaiah Sweet's existence unstable, to say the least. As I mentioned before, by age 17, he had dropped out of high school. He would blame his mother's illness for quitting school, but he also skipped school frequently, used drugs, and was in and out of hospitals himself for mental illness and substance abuse. At such a very young age, how can a child maintain a successful school life with everything crumbling around them? I am not defending this killer, and he is a killer, but the pattern of instability around him here is undeniable. I don't know how a child is really expected to make all the right choices, not to resort to substance abuse and things like that, when the only male role model in this kid's life is in fact also an addict who is openly abusing alcohol and may quite possibly be abusing him as well. So it's very evident that this family has a rough, rough history here. Constant fighting, law enforcement involvement, substance abuse, and trouble managing conflict among themselves. You can see that Isaiah was not embellishing the truth when he told his friends that he hated his grandparents. Isaiah Sweet not only said he hated them, but he said he wanted to kill them. Now, we've we've all heard people say before, Oh, I'm gonna kill you as a slang term, like not something they mean literally. But did Isaiah Sweet mean it? Friends of Isaiah Sweet stated that his grandparents were very strict. They would also say that sometimes he tried to get along with them as best as he could just to make his life easier. Although from the 911 reports, it doesn't totally look that way. According to Sweet, things in the home were very stressful to say the least. Janet, his grandmother who raised him, was dying of cancer. He stated that his grandfather, Richard, called him a piece of shit every day of his life and said that Richard constantly told him to just kill himself and fall off the face of the earth. According to Sweet, his grandparents treated him like shit. In interviews, he would state that he tried so hard to help his grandma with everything, but his grandpa made everything so hard and would stress him out, would scream at him all the time for no reason, and he didn't know what to do anymore, so he just snapped. Spoken like a true 17-year-old. As Mother's Day weekend 2012 grew closer, Isaiah Sweet's anger and hatred for the couple who raised him grew hotter. A search of Isaiah's computer would later reveal that he was formulating a plan to get rid of his biggest problem, his grandparents. He had made online searches for how to kill a person in a way that wasn't too messy and didn't cause pain. He explored several options to kill his grandparents. Poisoning, beating them with a bat, and shooting them. Now, something else that would come up later is that there was also something pretty sinister found in a search of the family computer. Not Isaiah's personal computer, but the computer of his grandfather, actually under Richard Sweet's login profile. And that sinister thing they found was child pornography. Richard Sweet had his own login and password on the computer that family members used, under the username Rick. There were six images of child pornography found on that computer. Richard's stepdaughter, Angie Camlin, would defend Richard, saying he would never download images like that, and steering the blame back over to Isaiah. Camlin said everyone in the house had access to that computer login not just Richard Sweet. Investigators were not able to determine who was responsible for the child pornography on the Sweet family computer, but it's just another piece of this strange puzzle. Isaiah Sweet's plans for his grandparents did not end with his internet searches for the perfect way to kill them. In fact, he even enlisted in the help of his friend, 21-year-old Brandon Allers. At just 21 years old, Allers was already on parole for previous convictions, and he was already the father of two young children. This guy was not your typical 21-year-old, but he's the guy Isaiah turned to when he needed advice about how to go about getting rid of Richard and Janet. Feeling like he had all the info he needed, Isaiah Sweet now felt confident enough to execute his plan, but he wavered a little bit. At first, he paced around with a baseball bat in his hand, contemplating hitting Richard with it over the head. But as I said before, he wanted a less messy method of murder. He also considered poisoning his grandparents, but he also decided against that. And this is where Brandon Allers' coaching comes into play. Allers showed Sweet how to use a rifle and instructed him to use that method for killing Janet and Richard. Sweet loaded his grandfather's rifle with hollow point rounds because he knew that they would do the most damage to their bodies, causing them to die quickly because he claimed he did not want his grandparents to go through any pain. He did put on earmuffs to protect his own hearing, and then on that fateful Friday before Mother's Day, Isaiah Sweet walked up behind his grandfather Richard where he sat on the couch and shot him fatally in the back of the head. When his grandmother, Janet, began panicking and yelling, Sweet shot her in the head as well, twice. Even though Isaiah Sweet had obviously pre-planned these murders, he claimed that as soon as he pulled the trigger, he sort of went into shock and immediately wanted to take it back. Remorseful and crying, Isaiah kissed both Richard and Janet on the tops of their heads. And just think of how their heads would have looked in this moment. This would have been a gory, bloody scene. He then said, I'm sorry, I love you. And he said a prayer, asking God for forgiveness, and then he fled the scene. Soon, friends would begin receiving strange text messages from Isaiah He would tell several friends that he had drugged his grandparents and feared that they may be dead, and he made very cryptic remarks on his Twitter wall about finally being free and able to live his life as he chose. That Friday evening, just hours after the murders, Isaiah would steal his grandfather's truck and head to the college town of Iowa City, about 75 miles away, to party with friends. Upon arrival, he was visibly upset. He was high on prescription painkillers and weed, and he acted erratically. Everyone knew that there was something wrong with Isaiah. He was driving fast and recklessly as he chauffeured his friends from place to place that evening, and at one point, police actually stopped him for it. In that routine stop, officials discovered that Sweet was driving with a revoked driver's license and that the truck wasn't his. However, Sweet was released, and it would still be days until law enforcement would know anything about the murder of Richard and Janet Sweet, about an hour and a half away in Manchester, Iowa. So Friday melted into Saturday, and then Brandon Allers, that friend who helped Isaiah plan his grandparents' murders, was back. Isaiah called Brandon over to the house to start ransacking it for anything that had value and could be sold for quick cash. Brandon Allers, and this is just, this shows what a cold-hearted monster he is. Brandon and Isaiah stood in the living room having a conversation next to the dead bodies of Richard and Janet Sweet, where they lay, slumped over on the couch. Police would later describe the gory crime scene, and it was bad. It was very bad. This is super, super graphic and I'm sorry but I need to paint this picture for you. Richard Sweet's head was literally blown open from the gunshot wound and his brain was hanging out of his skull. This wasn't a PG-13 rated scene here, folks. This was absolutely horrifying. And Isaiah Sweet and Brandon Allers stood right there next to them, discussing the flat screen TV that was in the living room and making plans to take it. In fact, they took numerous items from the home throughout that weekend walking past the two dead bodies all the while. And Allers reported nothing to police. Who could do that? So as the weekend moved on, it was a drug-fueled attempt at basically procrastination because Isaiah Sweet had to know the police would soon be coming for him. According to Sweet, he made several suicide attempts over the course of the weekend, but just couldn't go through with it. Apparently, it's much easier to plan ahead and brutally murder two people who raised you than it is to take your own life, but that's neither here nor there. Then Sunday came around. It was Mother's Day. Janet Sweet had previously made plans for her family to come over and spend the afternoon celebrating the day with her. Janet's daughter, Angie Camlin, and Angie's daughter arrived at the home around 2 p.m., and they found it strange when nobody came to the locked door. They checked around the perimeter of the house and nothing. And then they found a back window that had been broken. Entering through the window, Camlin's daughter was able to gain entry into the home only to walk into an absolute nightmare. One that would give her ongoing PTSD for years to come. The young girl found both her grandparents shot to death on their sofa. They'd been sitting there decomposing for days and... This is an image that this girl has struggled in dealing with in the decade after the murder. So the bodies of Janet and Richard were accounted for, but where was Isaiah? Everyone immediately considered Isaiah Sweet their number one suspect. He had a very vocal hatred of his grandparents, he had a history of making threats towards them, a background of mental illness, and lots of police involvement in their past disputes but he was nowhere to be found. Eventually though, police caught up with Isaiah Sweet, where he was hiding out in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, about 45 minutes from his Manchester home. He was immediately brought in for questioning and arrested for the murder of his grandparents because he admitted to it right away. No denying, no lying. He just point-blank admitted to their murders and he laid out all the shocking details for police. This is a clip of Isaiah Sweet's interrogation where he unremorsefully tells detectives how he killed Richard and Janet.
1: I shot my grandpa. He just dropped. And I got blood just poured. And my grandma looks over and she's like, what's going on? Boom! shot right there, grazed her head. And she was still moving. So I shot her right here through her head. How close were you, Isaiah? Uh, okay. Well, honestly, from the barrel of gun that my grandpa said. So okay, did you, he see it
2: coming to me? He was, he was so drunk and high
1: on the box, he got the hydrophone. Okay. He didn't Let me else. do this by hand. <laughs> if you standing up real quick. If I'm your grandpa, <laughs> sit on the couch like you. Are uh, we this close? I'm going like <laughs> this. <class. laughs> okay. I'm down like that. I was right about here on this stairs. Okay, so he's, he's hunched over, is he asleep? Yeah, well, uh, no, he's, sh- out he's out of on his own drugs. drugs. He, he was hunched over. over like, kind of trying to watch TV, trying to smoke a cigarette. Where's the or, TV, like, TV. at? Right from wherever. Like where, where, right here Oh, let's say five more feet forward. Okay, so you're back over there, go back to where you were. And this would be the stairs. There, I was on the third or fourth stair down. Well, I was on the fourth or fifth stair down at first. So I could could see his hair from there. So when I took the first shot, I took one step up, I stared out, so I could see his whole head shot. Where did the first shot came from? First shot, straight through his
0: head. At this point, there really was no remorse coming from Isaiah Sweet after he committed these murders. He felt as though the killings were completely justified, stating that Richard Sweet was horribly abusive to him. He never gave all that much detail as to why he took Janet's life as well, other than that she was complicit in Richard's abuse and actions. So, 17-year-old Isaiah Sweet, still technically a child in the eyes of the law, is charged with murder, and his trial was set to begin. He was first set to appear in juvenile court, but those charges were swiftly transferred to district court, where the boy would be tried as an adult. And, besides the murder charges, Isaiah Sweet had a slew of other charges that he was facing— Just one month prior to murdering his grandparents, Sweet was charged with sexually assaulting a girl. He also faced charges of possession of drug paraphernalia, possession of alcohol by a minor, trespassing, and operating a motor vehicle without the owner's consent. What the judge and jury would have to determine is, was Sweet a mentally ill abused victim here, or was he just a cold-blooded psychopath who didn't want to be told what to do?
1: What is amazing to me is that he showed absolutely no remorse for these crimes. This is obviously a dangerous person and I beg you to sentence him with as many years as you can. Mom and Rick will never get to see one day ever again and I don't see why he should. My
0: son does have compassion. He has a compassionate heart. And I believe that he doesn't deserve a chance at life
2: his level of insight, his level of empathy, and his his self-concept were much lower than I would have expected for somebody aged 17, pretty close to 18th birthday.
0: So going back to Isaiah Sweet's formative years, this boy experienced trauma after trauma. By his own account, he was brutally raped by a neighbor at the age of four. He was dwelling in a household that was peppered with constant violence. At just four years old, Sweet was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. The Sweet family participated in years of individual and family therapy for the various dysfunctions within the home. At age 16, after more therapy and counseling, Isaiah Sweet would be re-diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and conduct disorder. His therapist characterized Sweet's insight and judgment as limited, and he noted that he may be experiencing symptoms of mania, leaning towards another new diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Sweet's behavior was frequently impulsive. He often put himself at risk and failed to recognize the consequences of his own actions. One time after meeting with juvenile court services, Isaiah became so upset and hostile that he jumped out of his grandparents' moving vehicle. In the murder trial, the court would hear testimony of Dr. Stephen Hart, a highly qualified expert witness in the field of clinical psychology with a special focus on the assessment of violence, risk, and psychopathic personality disorder. Dr. Hart reviewed extensive documentation regarding SWEET and also interviewed SWEET prior to preparing his report. Dr. Hart discussed medical advancements in the past 20 to 30 years regarding the understanding of the development of the adolescent brain. He noted that it's now understood that up until the age of about 25, there's a period of rapid development in the adolescent brain. He noted that when individuals are young, they're impulsive, and as people get older, they learn the skills to control that behavior. But Isaiah Sweet did not have the capacity to control his impulsive behaviors because Dr. Hart concluded that Sweet had severe developmental problems. Serious problems related to mental health, serious problems with personal relationships, and serious problems with educational adjustment. Dr. Hart said that Sweet had poor decision-making abilities. He also concluded that Sweet was psychologically and socially immature in terms of self-concept, empathy, and insight, at least in part due to early-onset severe ADD. He testified that while Sweet was chronologically 17 years old, his mental age was actually somewhere around that of a 12-year-old. Dr. Hart noted that although Sweet's actions appeared to be highly planned and premeditated, they were very poorly thought out and childlike. Trial of a young man for the murder of his grandparents is our top story tonight.
1: 18-year-old Isaiah Sweet faces two counts of first-degree murder, with the deaths of Richard
0: and Janet Sweet. Their bodies were found in their Manchester home last May. He was found after a manhunt that stretched beyond the corridor. CBS 2 News reporter Jason Hackett is in Dubuque, where the jury selection is underway. Jason.
2: The jury selection process started this morning, a very chilly Wednesday morning, at around 9.30. It wrapped up today at around 4.30. There was no jury seated. The judge says the process will continue tomorrow. Now, this case has captured the attention of many people here in Iowa. Let's take a look at how we got to this point. The case of Isaiah Sweet spawned a manhunt that stretched across three counties, Mother's Day, Sunday, May 13th 2012, in Manchester. The bodies of 55-year-old Richard and 62-year-old Janet Sweet are discovered by relatives. Court documents show that 18-year-old Isaiah confessed to several friends that he was responsible for their death. In one call, he said he, quote, drugged them and didn't feel a pulse. Police believe the last time the couple was seen alive was Friday. On Saturday, shortly after the alleged murders, Sweet Sweet made his way to Iowa City in his grandfather's truck. Police encounter the teen at a convenience store in Iowa City, where he set off an alarm by trying to open a door. He is detained but then released. But a short time later, police issue a warrant for his arrest. The 36-hour search for Sweet finally ends in Cedar Rapids on Monday, May 14th. Sweet is arrested that night along a railroad track and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Just last month, his alleged accomplice in the case, Brandon Allers bargained a plea deal. He was sentenced to 18 years in prison and made an agreement to testify against Sweet. Of course, we'll be here in Dubuque for the duration. Stay tuned to CBS2 News and our website, cbs2iowa.com, for updates as the trial of Isaiah Sweet continues. We're live in Dubuque, Jason Hackett, CBS2 News.
0: So again, Isaiah Sweet had the emotional maturity of a 12-year-old, but he was being tried as an adult. And even with this info, the jury quickly deliberated and brought back a guilty verdict. The Delaware County District Court sentenced Isaiah Sweet to life in prison without the possibility of parole. A confessed teenage murderer will spend the
1: rest of his life behind bars with no chance of parole. A judge sentenced Isaiah Sweet
0: today for the murders of his grandparents. Richard and Janet Sweet. The couple was found shot dead in their home in Manchester in May of 2012. Sweet was later arrested in Cedar Rapids. He pleaded guilty to two counts, first-degree murder. His lawyer had asked for a chance of parole, but the judge denied that request. CBS 2 News reporter Jason Hackett was in the courtroom today and is back. Joining us now with the latest, Jason.
2: Yeah, guys, today was a first for Iowa. The 2012 Supreme Court case miller versus Alabama says mandatory life sentences for juveniles without parole are unconstitutional. Prosecutors tell us this is the first time in Iowa a judge has referenced that case while sentencing a teen. A sense of finality for a family still in mourning
1: I couldn't wrap my mind around anything else but
2: no parole. The family of Richard and Janet Sweet say a life sentence without parole was the only way to go. As Miller versus Alabama shows, a mandatory life sentence without parole is unconstitutional for teens. However. The court explicitly did not foreclose
0: a sentencing court's ability to make that judgment in homicide cases.
2: So the judge considered five factors in determining Sweet's sentence, age and maturity, Home environment, circumstances of the homicide, competence of the suspect, and the possibility of rehabilitation. As for Asian maturity, he says though Sweet was 17 at the time of the crime, had he been nine months older, the law would have required him to serve life in prison without the possibility of parole. When considering family environment, he says the Sweet household was stable. The circumstances of the murders, not in the heat of the moment. Rather, Shubat says it was premeditated and he says there's no question Sweet was competent during it all. He understood his rights when he was apprehended and was able to recite those rights before they were recited to him. Finally, Shubat says a doctor called Sweet's potential for rehabilitation mixed at best. He did not know whether defendant was treatable, let alone what treatment might be appropriate.
1: He was a psychopath and to this day has no empathy. This cannot be healed by medicine and you cannot teach a person how to feel.
2: After that analysis, it was life without parole for sweep, a rarity for juveniles in Iowa and a victory for a family trying to
0: heal.
1: And I thank the judge and all involved and I feel justice was done today.
0: But that's not where the story ends. This sentence would be brought into question by the state Supreme Court, who would claim that the district court improperly handed down a life sentence to this juvenile. You see, in many other landmark Supreme Court cases, handing down a sentence to a minor of life in prison without the possibility of parole has been deemed as cruel and unusual punishment. The 2005 case Roper v. Simmons said juveniles cannot receive the death penalty no matter how heinous the crime. Five years later in 2010, Graham v. Florida banned life without parole for juvenile offenders. The 2012 case Miller v. Alabama went a step further, striking down mandatory life sentences for juveniles. So, as you can see, previous case law supported the idea that Sweet should not have been imprisoned for life without the possibility of parole. Sweet's lawyers argued that his sentence violated the Iowa Constitution because of his age, his immaturity level, and his impetuousness, and also because of his prospects for rehabilitation. So, in this landmark move, the Iowa Supreme Court overturned Sweet's sentence, stating that nine other states have abolished life without the possibility of parole sentences for juveniles, thereby establishing a clear direction toward the abolition of life-in-prison death penalties for juveniles. Did you catch that? Life-in-prison death penalties? They said that juveniles who received a life-in-prison sentence actually basically received a death sentence because they ended up with no chance for ever rehabilitating and walking free again and would surely die in prison. The Supreme Court stated that nobody can really predict how time may change in the brain development of a minor who previously acted impulsively without thought of consequences. Maybe some of them can be rehabilitated with the right intervention and the right therapy. The Supreme Court's decision gives these kids another chance. So what this means for Isaiah Sweet is, he would have a chance to eventually leave prison. He would potentially not have to spend the entire rest of his life behind bars for the murder of his grandparents. And remember that friend Brandon Allers, the one who helped Isaiah plan the murder and steal items from the Sweet home afterwards? Well, he took a plea deal, and he's currently serving 18 years for his role as an accessory in the murders. Isaiah Sweet is serving his life sentence at the Iowa State Penitentiary in Fort Madison, Iowa. And although he will be eligible for possible parole at some point, that hasn't happened so far in his nine years in prison. By all appearances, it seems that Sweet is attempting to change his life for the better as an adult. He has a tutoring job in prison, and he speaks to groups of educators about preventing at-risk youth from following in his troubled footsteps. He's open about the events that took place that Mother's Day in 2012 and about what led him to where he is now. Isaiah Sweet committed a horrible, horrible crime. He brutally murdered his grandparents. And that person who did that is a monster. There's no denying that. I don't want it to come across like I'm defending him at all because what that person did was horrible. He was a monster. But I feel like we have to look at what created the monster. Isaiah Sweet had been abandoned, abused physically, mentally, verbally, and sexually, and he was surrounded by no positive role models in his life. He was plagued with severe mental illness, largely because of how he was raised. And sometimes with people like this, I just feel like they never had a chance. We all have choices and he made the wrong one. He really did. But in these cases, I always go back to the beginning and I always have to look at who raised them and how they were raised. In a lot of cases, I feel like there is no hope for rehabilitation, but I'm really keeping my fingers crossed in this situation, and I hope that maybe eventually something good can come out of this absolutely horrible thing that happened. Maybe at some point he can have a positive effect on someone else's life and prevent other at-risk youth from doing what he did. I don't know. This is just... it's a tough one. It's tough. What do you guys think? When you hear a case like... Like this do you have any empathy or sympathy for the murderer do you think he should have gotten life in prison without the possibility of parole i want to hear your thoughts on this i'm kelly barons brink and this has been true crime irl the story of isaiah sweet For more information, go to truecrimeirl.com and please be sure to follow True Crime IRL on all the socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the things at True Crime IRL. And if you really like this podcast, please help me out and leave me a positive review and a five-star rating if you could. It really helps this podcast get found on all the platforms. I really appreciate it. And once again, I, I'm going to cry. Con. I am so excited. It's it's days away. I It'll be my first time at CrimeCon and I'm not going as like a presenter or speaker or anything, but I am hoping to network with lots of true crime obsessed people like me. I'm just super excited. Don't forget, there's a brand new full episode coming out every single Friday and there's a little Murder Minute mini episode Monday through Thursday every week. So, Until next time, lock your doors, people. Even if you have a scary family member who makes you feel unsafe, really lock your doors then. Just shut the door, turn the lock, click it, lock it, just do it, lock those doors. Bye bye